0: Everybody have a good week, everybody have a good weekend, right? Some of you coming off of fall break, some of you starting fall break. Um, our family is uh, in the midst of fall break, our kids are off this week of school, we're actually leaving right after this, I'm leaving and heading down uh, for a quick vacation and we've been getting ready for that all weekend and while I was in the midst of getting ready for that all weekend, I uh, I found a shocking statistic, something that is I don't know if it's just come to light, but I just found it. And so for me, it's just come to light, whether it's been around a while or not. But I found out that I had engaged in an activity that is more deadly than a shark attack. And that many of you in this room have engaged in an activity that is more deadly than a shark attack. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not. I've thought about it because I'm going to the beach Um, And, you know, it seems like sometimes you turn on the news and people are getting attacked by sharks all the time everywhere. But in the last 12 months worldwide, there have been eight people that have been killed by a shark attack by shark. This activity, which my guess is many of you in this room have participated in, have killed 12 people as of the last year. Anybody know what it is? It's very dangerous. Anybody know? It's this taking a selfie I tricked you a little bit. That's not. It is true. Twelve people. Do. How many of you have ever taken a selfie? All right. Some of you haven't raised your hands and yet I see them on your Instagram. All right. And so selfies are out there. The ubiquitous. Here's the question. I, I got a question for you. I, I just want you to guess. All right. How, when do you think uh, the first documented selfie was taken? Anybody want to guess? Anybody got a, a, a date they want to guess? What, what year? What year we are? do this? Tell the person next to you what year you think the first selfie was taken. All right, somebody shout it out to me. First selfie taken, what year? What do you think? 1860. What's your, any method to that, Scott? Are you just, they got Polaroids back in 1860? I didn't know they had that, the way you held that. Anybody else? Anybody think it's later than 1860? It's earlier. Here it is. I got it. I have it right here. Here it is. This is Robert Cornelius. Quit looking up Wikipedia. Robert Cornelius in 1830, it was 1839, that's because it's on Wikipedia, all right, this is Robert Cornelius, and he took a picture this way, this is how he did it, it took so long to get the picture taken, he took the cap off of it, was able to set it to start going, walked around, and sat there for about a minute, and then walked back and put the cap on, and this is what happened, so, what's interesting is, one of the first ever phot- photograph photographers, One of the first ever photographs of a person of any kind is a selfie. Now, in 1900, Kodak came out with this camera called the Kodak um, Brownie Box. And it allowed people to put it on a tripod. And people started to do this thing. I don't know if you've heard of this either. They started taking pictures of themselves in the mirrors. So in 1900, for instance, here's a picture of a woman who took a picture. She's in the mirror there. Taking a picture of herself in a mirror. This is not a hipster thing, all right. She is very well. She kind of does look like a hipster a little bit, all right. Uh, It's kind of how they dress. And so, without that, except this would be a guy with the man bun on top. And so they. This guy, these cameras, they take a picture into a mirror and it comes back. Or I don't know if you know this or not, but not all selfies have been taken on the earth. In November of 1966, Gemini 12 flight, Buzz Aldrin, the guy, the second guy to be on the earth, took a picture of himself with that as his background. All right. And so Buzz actually put on Twitter, do you know I was the first guy to take a selfie in space? He's trying to be first at something. And uh And it turned out he was not true because somebody else took one about six months earlier that they posted. So, um, but Buzz Aldrin taking a picture there. And now, as you know, it's just they're just everywhere like this. Just everywhere. Even some people you recognize in there, because some of them are taken from my feed this morning as I got up and. Family celebrating a UT victory last night. Somebody with Jeb Bush at the UT game last night. The President's Cup here that just won over in Korea. Pope's visit to America recently. This uh, handsome guy over here with his son. They're everywhere, right? Like you put on any kind of Instagram feed or anything and there's selfies everywhere. Just a quick question. Why, Why do people take selfies? Like, let's get psychological for a minute, all right? Why do people take selfies? No explanation, right? Why do they take them? They're cute picture posts. Well, that's, <laughs> here's what I do think, all right? Here's, here's part of it. It's not all of it, but part of it is, part of it is you just want to capture the moment. What about, okay, to capture the moment than take a picture? Well, why do you want to bother somebody else to take your picture, right? You got, you've got the camera. We've got the ability to easily as part of the reason, but it also does speak to the kind of external focus that we have in our society. If you look online, there are ways and tips to take selfies better so that you look better. You know what's funny is a lot of people take five, six, eight, twelve, two hundred selfies at a time and then choose which one they look worst in, right? What do you do? You choose the one you look... Right. And you don't care what the other person, if they're more than one person like Courtney doesn't care what this girl looks like. She only cares about her. Right. You just think what do I look like? There there are tips that I don't know if you know this or not, but if you put it at a high angle, it enlarges your eyes and makes your chin look thinner. So we have this external. View of who we are. And it does speak to this kind of. We want everybody to participate in the superficiality of our lives. We want people to know where we are and what we're doing and the great time we're having and all the fun that's happening. But they can't really experience it with us unless they're there. And so we want people to experience life with us at a very superficial level. Level And it speaks to the superficiality of our culture. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day because I just happened to look at Facebook. And I don't even know what my friend account is on Facebook now. But I think it's somewhere over 2,000. Now, let me just, I'm going to give you a little bit of a secret, okay? I I do not have 2,000 close friends. I I, I don't know if you know that or not. sorry if uh, you are now offended or hurt by that. But I have over 2,000 people. When I put something on Facebook, when I put a picture of Eli and I at his last middle school football game of the year, and I put that up, and proud of him for his hard work, over 2,000 people have access to that. In fact, for me, it's more than that because mine's public, and so, and I know that, so it's out there in the public, so anybody that looks up Lyle Larson on Facebook, they can see the picture, and so it's sharing life with the masses. And yet, even my own son didn't really care about this moment. Right? You parents, you all realize that, right? Come over here. I don't want your picture. To get over here. Right now, we're taking a picture. Any parents have that struggle, right? I don't want to. It. It's the last game, you, you know. Now, let's go. And we want this existence where we feel like we're a part of everything. And yet, there's nothing kind of grounding us in the middle to something deeper. In a society... That is, to use the old cliche, a mile wide and an inch deep. It's very easy for our faith and our walk with Jesus and our commitment to his transformation in our life to be a mile wide and an inch deep. We've been talking over the last few weeks about this concept of a masterpiece that Christ We looked at that passage of scripture that said that that Christ has created us and that, that we are saved by grace. And the reason we are is because we are to become God's masterpiece, his piece of art, his workmanship. And that in the midst of that, he's transforming us into whom he wants us to be. But as a Christian, especially in America, one of the biggest temptations, one of the biggest downfalls, one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest issues we have is that we want to settle for superficial change. And Jesus mentions over and over and over again to the people that would follow him and to his followers that would say to their followers that we should never settle for superficial change. We don't settle for things that just look good on the outside. We want to go deeper than that. We were created not to be something that just has a veneer, that just has a look on the outside of something that's changed. We want to be actually changed within. Jesus spoke to people in very unsettling terms about the fact that it is so easy to slip into a superficial change that we don't experience that inward transformation, that, that true changing of who we are. Over in Matthew chapter 23, you can turn there if you have your Bibles. We're going to be there for a minute, then we're going to turn back to another place. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus reserved some of his harshest critiques for people that he calls inauthentic, hypocrites. People that were spiritually Superficial. Now, you have to understand when he's talking about hypocrites in this particular passage of Scripture, you have to understand the background of that word hypocrites. He would have been speaking to an audience that would have been familiar with Greek drama. And the word hypocrite actually comes from an actor in a play. And back then they had they had multiple roles in a play and they only had uh, one or two people to play the roles, however many had to be on stage at the same time. And so one actor might play five roles in a play. And the only way he changed was he might change a little bit of the costume. But the only way he really changed, we so put on a different mask, a different veneer, a different out, outside, external face. And he'd walk on the stage and go, oh, now he's Cassius. Then he'd walk back out. oh, now, now he's Brutus. Because he had changed one thing, he was playing a role. And so hypocrite came into Jesus' time to mean someone that just played a role, that just did what they kind of thought they were supposed to do, but didn't really have the inward Sameness. This isn't going to be on the screen, but look at what he says in Matthew chapter 23. Listen, if you don't have a a Bible or or for some reason don't have a phone with it on it. Matthew chapter 23, verse one says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So he's talking to to people that weren't the Pharisees and the scribes. Scribes and Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day, the rulers of the day. In fact, he says in verse two, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses seat. So do observe what they tell you. He says, listen, they're in kind of a place of power. They're sitting in Moses' seat. The reason he used Moses is because Moses is considered the greatest leader of the Israelite people. Kind of lead them out of bondage when they were in captivity like they were in Roman times. That Moses is the one that led them out. And so he spoke truth to them. And he says, listen, they're in Moses' seat. They're speaking truth. He's not a king like David. He didn't have a kingdom, but he's speaking truth. So observe what they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach but they do not practice and then starting in verse 13. We're not going to go through this whole chapter, but I want to give you just a few out of there. But I want you to see the pattern here, starting in verse 13. Jesus begins to say, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites, We hear that and we go, ooh, he called him a hypocrite, but that's not really the main thing he says that's shocking. Hypocrites would have been a something that would go, oh, but the word woe there is the word that is really the focus of what Jesus is saying. Because in their day, in their time, the word woe is not like, oh, woe is me. It was a guttural, primal cry of anguish. It was what comes out of you when you hear the worst possible news and you don't know how to explain what is happening in your life and you can't use words to say anything about it and just crawling up out of you is this whoa And it also meant in the Old Testament times not just that, but it was a significant sign of the judgment of God, the wrath of God that was coming upon His people. And so, when Jesus says, "Woe to you," He's saying, to them, "This is bad. This is this is not good. This is terrible news." And then He lists all kinds of reasons He shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't go yourself and you prevent people from going. You're tying up stuff they don't need. You make decisions on what you want to obey and what you don't want to obey. And then what you want to obey, you tell people everybody has to. What you don't want to, you say, we don't have to. You're nitpicky about the things that really matter. You you only clean outside of stuff. You don't really go inside. You act like you care about the prophets and decorate their tombs. But if they would have been... During your time, you would have killed them, too, and you're about to kill me. Woe to you, he says. God's judgment is coming upon you. And so here's the question that I want to ask in part one of of two parts, and we're going to go through these very quickly. The question I want to ask is this. How do we know we're settling for for, for spiritual superficiality? And here's the first question. Am I spiritually inauthentic? Am I spiritually inauthentic? I had a, a horrifying experience yesterday. Horrifying. Um, I mentioned earlier, we're, we're leaving. I'm going on a trip with my family. First time that we're taking Ava to the beach. She doesn't have a clue what the beach is. She says she's excited about it. We'll see. All right. And so yesterday and Friday, now we all had the stomach virus this week. I don't know if you heard, but the plague of the stomach virus ran through um, Our children's department last week we had 13 with stomach virus by Tuesday morning, and then I got it Thursday night. Everybody in my family but Susan had it. Uh, Stomach virus so bad it even affected the starting pitcher from the St. Louis Cardinals last night, and that's the the only reason we lost, Um, which is not true at all. But uh, it's terrible. All right, stomach virus terrible. So. All week we've been cleaning, Cloroxing. You know, I've got my hands are rubbed raw from Clorox. stuff. You just clean everything. And then like Friday afternoon, we had to switch gears because we're leaving town. So you got to go, oh, we got to get everything ready to go. And I don't know what happens at your house. But at my house, the house that you're leaving has to be spotless before you can leave it. Because heaven forbid there be anything out while you're not there for a week. Right. Anybody, anybody else that is that the way it is at your house, right? Like, I mean, it has to be like, it's cleaner than it's ever been when you've lived in it for you not to live in it, right? And so you get it all clean. And not only do you have to clean everything on the inside of the house, you got to clean the vehicles. Now, one, I understand we're driving one vehicle down. There it needs to be clean. We need to, because we're going to mess it up on the way down there. But you have to clean even the vehicle that's going to sit in the garage all week. And in doing, I, I did That's so why I went and got in the van and it's a, typical minivan with four kids. I found five or six pounds of crushed up Cheerios and uh, found papers from um, I don't know if you that don't have kids in our preschool uh, department. They have four hundred and twelve pages that go home every week from the gospel project. And so stuff stuffed everywhere, stuck everywhere. Uh, Paintings that had been done, beautiful pieces of artwork that had been done with Various implements in our preschool department, stuffed in the back of my seats, a couple of cups and all that. And you take it all in, you throw away what needs to be thrown in, and then you get to the part where you get to open the cups. All right? We're, we're frugal. We don't throw away, alright? And there's always the hope that you got the water cup. Right? Like, you're like, oh, it's just the water cup. Or, It's just been in there a day or so. I remember seeing that. I remember them having that like two days ago. So I go, and I don't know if you know this, and those that don't have kids currently or had not had them in a while, the, the suction they make on these new sippy cups are absolutely amazing. It lets absolutely nothing leak out of them. But it also conceals any odor or problems that's going on dwelling inside. And so as I went to the sink and I cracked open the snow white princess cup, there was a smell that emanated from that cup that is worse than any toxic spill that has happened in the history of the world. How many of you have ever been there, right? Anybody want to guess what was in there? Chocolate milk. Or what at one time was chocolate milk. Milk, it was more like chocolate cottage cheese at the moment, right? If this is making you have a weak stomach, too bad, all right? And you open and the smell just hits you. And so the first thing you do is what? You close that thing right back and step back like I got to have a game plan on how I'm attacking this thing, right? So you get stuff in the sink and you get everything going so that smelling good in there. You go, Susan, we got any bathy body works candles in the in the closet. We got five or six good. Let's get them all going right here. And you open it up, and you dump it out, and you, all that. And four or five days later, you're all right. The outside looked perfectly fine. But the inside was completely turned, Or as they said when I grew up, turned, right? It's curdled milk. Look what Jesus says to these guys. Woe to you. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. Jesus knew about sippy cups and curdled milk, right? Right? But inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, here's how you know if you are just worried about the external. Are you spiritually inauthentic? Are you concerned with looking good no matter what it takes and no matter whether it's the truth or not? They had this tradition, and he talks about this in this passage as well. You can go back and read this whole passage. It's fascinating to read all of it. But he goes and talks about this. They had this tradition that if you stood on the Mount of Olives and you looked down into the valley, there was a cemetery in the valley. And every year right before Passover, they would clean off everything that was, that was degrading or making the tombs look bad, and they would paint them all white. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are those whitewashed tombs. Like they look good on the outside, but inside the tombs are still dead bodies. And his concern for you and his concern for me is that we somehow think that slapping a coat of paint or having some behavioral modification will change who we are when the gospel teaches us that the only change that comes is from the reworking and the redoing and the regeneration of our heart from Jesus Christ himself. And that just slapping a coat of paint on a tomb doesn't make it alive. And the temptation is in a society that is whitewashed tombs wide and nothing very deep is to make our spiritual life look good when there's nothing going on. You ever come to church? I mean, and you look good. Hair's done. Outfit looks good. Walked in. People, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm good. And you haven't given even a minute to preparing your heart and your soul for what God wants to do. If you, Pastor, if you knew what it took for me to get to church, woo, it's just good I'm even here five minutes late. I'm glad you're here. I'm real glad you're here. But is a superficial exercise to show that you're spiritual, or have you prepared for this moment as if it's a moment when God is going to interact with you? Am I spiritually inauthentic? Second question Am I becoming judgmental or exclusive? proud. Now, just a little spoiler for you here. It, the answer to this question shouldn't be yes. Like, you don't want to say, yes, I am. Awesome. Um, there was some uh, criticism of Christianity in a place that most people would expect it, but it was especially biting because it was kind of seemed true. But on The Simpsons one time in an episode, you know where Ned Flanders, if you've ever watched The Simpsons, Ned Flanders is the Christian neighbor next door. Uh, It's been on for, if you haven't seen The Simpsons, you've missed out on something for the last 120 years. I think it's been on for a long time. But uh, Ned Flanders pulls back in the driveway and Homer says, where have you been? He goes, oh, we've been over at Christian camp learning how to be all judgmental. It seems like we do that, right? We become judgmental or exclusive or proud. Here's the thing. True spiritual change doesn't lead you to look at other people less than you. True spiritual change doesn't cause you to judge other people based on your standard of excellence. Now, let me just say real quick as well. One of the most misunderstood and misused verses in all of Scripture is the verse where people say, Jesus says, don't judge or you'll be judged. Here's the truth. We're all going to get judged. All right. All right. Jesus isn't saying there we never can point out things in our society or in our neighbor's life or in our our friends' lives or in our spouse's life or in our kids' lives. He says he's not saying that. Don't ever tell people, hey, I've noticed this about you and I'm really concerned about you because I don't think that's in line with what God would want to be doing in your life. That's not what Jesus is saying. He, he's not saying we don't ever say, hey, that is sin because. Sin is sin. We we talk about that. But what he is saying is that if the judgment becomes the nature of our lives, if the first thing we think of is judgment and condemnation, and we think of our exclusivity because we're now followers of Jesus Christ, or the pride we have in being who we are, then we have missed out on the hummed, the humility that comes from following Christ. And can I tell you something? Of all the people in the history of the world, the people that ought to be least given to judgment and exclusivity and pride are those of us that have been saved by grace, not of our works, lest anyone should boast. And if your life becomes more, I can't believe they did that or why can't they understand or who are they? or We are right and they're not. If your life becomes more and more that way. Then there's superficial stuff happening, not inward transformation. Look at what Jesus says to the the Pharisees here in this verse. Should be the next slide there. They love. They have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues. They want to be honored. They want to be put in special places. They say they become judgmental. They become proud. They become arrogant. They become exclusive. They want this. And let me just tell you, this is a, a, a real problem for for some of our some Christians in our society today. When it seems like as Christians we're having our places of honor at banquets and seats and synagogues taken away from us because we are Christians, and saying, "Oh, you don't get those places of honor anymore." We have to how we react to that shows the depth of our spiritual transformation. Jesus says, what well, to the Pharisees? Because they love that place of honor uh, on that selfie, selfie thing I, I uh, showed earlier. There was a picture of Jeb Bush there and whatever you think of Jeb Bush and what's happening in the campaign and all that. It was interesting just to see yesterday. Uh, I saw several posts and it seemed like everywhere he went, they wanted pictures with him. Now, there's this celebrity status kind of thing out there. and People just want pictures with celebrity. But part of it is they just want to be next to the guy that's got a shot. They want to be in places of honor and the best seats. We have to be a place where we are humble and we say, we, we will take a step back in order to serve others. That shows spiritual transformation. Two more, then we're going to move on to, to kind of the solution of this. Number three, am I becoming more approachable or less? All right, quiz time, all right? Can anybody name a person that has lived a perfect life Never sinning. I know that in church, oftentimes, it's like the little boy in Sunday school where the teacher said, hey, can somebody name for me an animal that um, is brown fur, has a fuzzy tail and lives in a tree? And he says, it's church, so the answer is probably Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel, right? So I know that normally you say that's Jesus, right? But Jesus lived a perfect life, right? Who's the only person to ever live a perfect life in the history of the world? Who is it? It's Jesus, all right? Here's what is absolutely fascinating about me. Jesus is the only person in the history of the world that can say, when somebody says, you act like you're holier than me. Well, I am, all right? He's the only one that could say, I am, because I am, because he is. Here's what's absolutely fascinating to me, all right? Holiest, most perfect, only perfect, only holy person to ever live. Who's attracted to him? Who's attracted to him? The sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the malcontents, the outcast, the hurt, the addicted, the possessed. Even though he is the most perfect human being to ever live, if you read the scripture, little kids, he is the most approachable person in history and anytime we think i just can't deal with them i can't deal with that kind of person we're saying more about our spiritual transformation than we want to say because it leads us to be more approachable not less he says this about them he says woe to them because they want to have people call them Rabbi. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But in their society, rabbi was a very esteemed term. And they would have said, hey, you know what? I I want to to call you rabbi. I want to have people call me rabbi because that puts me in a different class. It puts me in a different level. And people want to congregate around me. They love to have people call them rabbi. Last question, and then we're going to move on to something in line with this. Am I measuring my spiritual life in superficial ways? Am my I measuring my, soup, my spiritual life in superficial ways? If I ask you the question, man, how's your spiritual life going? How's it going? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Some of you like, it's going like junk. It's terrible. But if it was going well, what would you say? What would you say? If I said, what's your spiritual life like right now? What would you say? What, what would be the thing that you would say, that's why it's doing well? Is it because, well, I made six out of seven Bible readings last week. And man, I am pumped about that. Or, man, like, uh, uh, you're not going to believe this, but, like, I prayed for 20 minutes a day every day. It's the first time I've done that. Man, I I, I stopped cussing last week, and it's unbelievable. Man, I cut out this addiction that I had. I, I've stopped it. I, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm 28 days from that. And it's so awesome. Those are all good. Someone said, what do, what, what do you think Paul would answer if someone said, how's your spiritual life going? And they supposed... It's not scripture, he doesn't ask that question in scripture. As opposed to he'd say, well, I'd ask myself the question, how am I loving God and loving others? Not how many times have I been in the word this week. The truth is that's just kind of a given for who we are. So here's the question. If we're supposed to be people that are inwardly transformed, not outwardly transformed, how in the world do we do that? How do we participate with God in creating this masterpiece? So there's not a superficial layer of just making us look a little better, but is deep inward transformation. How does that happen? And the truth is, the only way for true inner transformation is to learn to train properly. Let me ask you a question. All right, let's, let's suppose for a minute that I'm sitting out watching my, uh, watching my television 2016 and The Olympics are in Rio, and I'm watching it, sitting there eating my Rotel dip, Velveeta cheese and Rotel together with a little hamburger meat in it. Mm, That's good, right? My Tostitos. I am eating that, drinking my Diet Dr Pepper, lounged in my recliner when my cell phone rings, and I don't understand. I don't know what the letter is, but I mean what the number is. But all right, I. It's, it's, it's a lottery chance, right? When you answer a number, you don't know what it is. You never know what you're going to get, right? So I'll, I'll answer and I pick up the phone and they say, "Wow, this is the U.S. Olympic Committee. And we have surveyed all close to 300 million people that live in our country. And through DNA analysis and temperament and behavior testing, we've been able to look into all the records of all those people and we've determined that you are the number one candidate for us to win gold medal. In Judo in 2020, like exactly what I was thinking with my Rotel by my side, my Dr. Pepper, right? Now, if I got that call, what are my responses possibly to that? A is to laugh in their face and say goodbye. I don't want any. I don't know what you're marketing, but no. B is to take them at face value and say, all right, I'll see you in 2020. Judo, it is. Right. Now, what happens if I show up at the judo or what do they call a judo arena? You don't you don't know this stuff. I don't either. Uh, judo. What do you I show up on the judo mat ready to fight? What happens when I get in the ring? The ring that tells you my wrestling background right there. They are gonna throw me into the turnbuckles. What they're going to do. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? What's going to happen to me in the judo mat? I'm going to get. Killed with a capital K, right? Now, what if they gave me eight years and I was 30 years younger and I spent eight years training for that moment? There's a difference between training and trying. Amen. You ever sat on your on your couch? I don't I don't know. Watching a football game where I don't know your team goes down 24 to three um, on a. Kick return, and you're watching, and people are fumbling and uninspired play, and you yell at TV, man, I could do better than that. Anybody ever said something like that? Right, all right, <laughs> David Jackson, you really—that's funny from you, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, now the truth is, if I got out there and tried to do better, what would happen? You wouldn't, right? Because those guys have trained. There's a difference between training and trying. And so here's the thing. If we want to have inward transformation in our life, we have to train like we want inward transformation. And the way you do that, and we don't have time today to go through all of them, and I plan on in the next few months us taking these kind of one at a time in different parts of different series. We have to do what has traditionally been called in in Christian life the spiritual disciplines. There are things that have been around for ages. We talked about one last week, studying God's word, but there are many, many others. Solitude and prayer, fasting, giving, celebrating. And if we want inward transformation, then we have to train under God's guidance and leadership for inward transformation. And over in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us three things about what that looks like in our life. And we're going to do those very quickly. Matthew chapter 6. you got a Bible turn there or get in your scripture on your phone and find it there. Matthew 6. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to these people gathered around that want to follow him. And he says to them this. And when you pray, this is chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. There's that word again, hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have a reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Here's the first thing that I want you to understand about these disciplines, about these inner training, about what it means to train for our spiritual inward life. The first thing you have to understand is if you're going to train, it's going to have to be in secret. What he means here when he says, go get in a room, shut the door, don't let anybody know, is not necessarily, although there's nothing wrong with this, it's not necessarily to have the room in your house that a closet that you've turned into a war room. That's a great movie. I don't know if you've seen it. It's not necessarily what he's talking about here. That's great. What he's just saying is, don't go out there and blab to everybody. Hey, look, I'm about to get spiritual for a minute. If ever, shh. You're at a restaurant, you're getting ready to say your blessing, and you just go, hey, could everybody knock it down for a minute? We're about to say our blessing here. I don't know if you all are pagans, but we are not. And I would like a moment with my family to say our blessing in this place. Right? Like, you gotta, it doesn't mean that you have this room walled off, although you can. It just means that you gotta spend time with the Lord by yourself. It's gotta be in secret. And then he says this And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases that the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. He says, Discipline should be secret. And then this, Discipline should be simple, uncomplicated. Every night at our dinner table, when we gather around, see, I'm doing what I told you not to do. We pray every night at our dinner table. And but what happens is we get there and it's just kind of in some ways become a habit, not a bad habit, but a habit. And we almost have an argument every night about who gets to pray first. Because both of my girls want to pray and they want to pray First. After we deal with that. Daddy always prays last. Always. Because I'm just a servant like that. Um, what I love to hear. Is the simplicity of their prayers. Ava will pray. Okay. And um, she'll say. I pray. I pray. I pray first day. Okay. The other night she prayed. And this, is, this was her, her prayer. God thank you for this day. Which obviously she's been listening to other people pray. I thank you for. My mommy. God, I thank you for my daddy. I thank you for my Lukey. I thank you for my Eli, for my sissy. And God, I thank you for myself. (laughs) So I just love, right? I'm glad about me. And then to hear Maddie, who will almost always pray on Monday or Tuesday, something she learned in Sunday school. And I know she learned in Sunday school. Last week it was, God, I thank you that you made all the animals that we see. Just the simplicity there. What goes right along with that is he says, listen, these people think that they're piling up words and by the number of words they say that God's got a max limit up in heaven. He's like, oh, their prayer was only four hundred and twelve words. They're not going to get any answers today. You got to have seven fifty or nothing. Right. He says. And don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's saying. Don't, don't just be simple. It's, God knows what you're going to ask. God knows what you need. You're not informing God about anything. You ever heard somebody inform God about something in prayer? God, I, I just, uh, I'm thankful that we are having this uh, potluck dinner this coming Friday. And God, I, I know that you know that that's at 12 o'clock at noon. And God, we want everybody to be there for that. Like you're informing God, God knows. They should be simple. And here's the last thing and the most important thing in some ways. Be sincere. Just. Be sincere. The way that you train inwardly is that you get alone with God. You're just simply who you are with him. You're sincere in pursuing him. And you allow God to do the change. You don't become somebody you're not. For the first five years of my life, I grew up at a little church called Southside Baptist Church. And Southside South Baptist Church was uh, on the outskirts of Dyersburg. Uh, some of my, my grandparents went, and so that 's where we went and um, before we, we went to my home church where I spent the rest of my time in Dyersburg. but um, Southside South Baptist Church was a rural kind of church. It was farmers and factory workers that was almost everybody that was there. And there was one guy in particular, I remember who I think was a used car salesman, I his name was Moody Golden, and Moody Golden. Um, was a uh, great guy, influential in my life. Obviously, I still remember his name. But Moody Golden was as country as you could be. I mean, if you wanted to interview the stereotypical West Tennessee country person who sounded like it and looked like it, it was Moody Golden. And Moody Golden was a deacon. And every three or four weeks, Moody would pray at the front of the church because we only had like three or four deacons in the whole church. And they just rotated. And Moody would get up there, and I'll never forget thinking, boy, I'm glad Moody's up there talking. I used to love just to listen to him talk. You ever had somebody with an accent, you just like listening to him talk? All right, man, Moody's going to do great. And Moody would get on there and would become a Shakespearean, Oxford-trained orator. You know what I mean? Like, Heavenly Father, Thou art our God. And we requesteth today... That you be near with us in this abode. And I was like, that's not Moody. Right? Now, nothing against Moody. Moody's a great man. That's not Moody. God doesn't expect us to become somebody we're not when we come to him. We come with sincerity and simplicity in secret. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk some about this a little bit more. Especially after the first year, we're going to talk about prayer and fasting quite a bit. I just want your heart to be prepared and say, Lord, I don't want to be superficial. I don't want to be surface level. I want to be inwardly transformed. Let's pray together.